Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Network Collective. On today's episode, we are going to be talking all about the favorite technology of many network engineers, and that is NAT. Yes, that NAT. We're going to poke and prod and see what exactly about NAT drives engineers crazy and share our take on where we think the often aboard technology is going. So before getting started, we want to take a second to thank today's sponsor, Core BTS. Core BTS is a VAR that services multiple regions here in the U.S. and a partner that focuses on building strong, trust-based relationships with their customers. I know this because I work there. Anyway, we'll hear more about Core and their approach to partnership later in the show. So we have a couple of esteemed and multi-appearance guests joining us on Network Collective today. First is Tom Hollingsworth, the famous networking nerd on social media and I don't say marketing face, front face. I don't know if you would say that of <laughs> networking field day from Gestalt IT, something that uh, an organization that we do a lot of work with. Um, also joining us is Nick Baraglio uh, and Nick's claim to fame is he works on networks that are way cooler than anything that you and I get to play on, which yeah, don't, don't sit there and shake your head. Uh, so also joining us today uh, is Yvonne Sharp. She's helping me in hosting duties. And so, yeah, let's get to it. So we're talking about NAT, everyone's favorite protocol. And so before we jump into uh, maybe beating up on it a bit, which I'm sure is bound to come, why don't we talk about the origins? Like, why does this thing exist? And, uh, and, and kind of where did it come from? Who wants to take that? So I'll jump in. Um, NAT, at a, basically at its core, is taking one address and translating it into a different address. That's network address translation. Now, the way that it does that is basically it takes the packet header when it crosses a routing, routing boundary and it just rewrites the packet. So you're not looking for network five anymore. You're looking for network six. Sure. That's it. And, and, and essentially what they did is they came up with the idea because um, they needed to be able to change what the external facing side of an address looked like and change the internal side of facing address. Now, there's a really good use case for this. If a company buys another company and they need to make the address spaces look different for some reason, it works perfectly fine. All of a sudden, everything in site A doesn't have the same address as everything in site B. That's it. I would, I would might contest the works perfectly fine statement depending <laughs> on your application. But we're, we're really, there, yeah. <laughs> all this centers around to RFC 1918 addresses and the fact that we're, yeah. you know, we're, we're out of IPv4 space. Right. And so we had to have a way to address, you know, local, uh, you know, autonomous networks. Um, I just had a kid come in the room. I'm sorry. Um, and, <laughs> and, 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 and keep those separate from the public Internet. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about NAT and its origins, it was, you know, originated initially to be a bridge. It was meant to be, we were running out of IPv4. Uh, we're talking about the days uh, of classful networking um, before we went to uh, classless networking and um, variable length subnet masks. And so, you know, if you had more than 254 hosts that you needed to address, you didn't get a class A, you got a class B. And there was a gigantic difference. In the, and people were doing the math and seeing that fact that, we're running out of addresses really, really quickly. And so I believe it was late nineties, right? Um, mm -hmm. that, that NAT came about and NAT was meant to be a bridge uh, along with uh, vari variable length subnet masks. Um, mm -hmm. the, the two combined together were meant to prolong IPv4 long enough to get into the next protocol. And prolong and, it did. And prolong it did. Here we sit many, many years later and um, 
there still is a reluctance, at least in enterprises, to move that direction at all. I mean, we're seeing some adoption or more adoption in places like service providers and research networks and mobile networks. And I'm sure uh, Nick can speak to some of that um, and has warned us that he plans on doing that later in the show. <laughs> but, uh, but, but really, I mean, from an adoption, you know, like a percentage or uh, a rate of adoption, it still is really slow. And we have actually, the, the thing that we're worried about has happened. Uh, uh, most registrars have run out of address space to allocate. Um, and so we're living off of a uh, gray market and network address translation, but the counter to all of that or not the counter, but I guess, you know, the, the reason why we do that is because it generally does work. So, you know, Yvonne kind of poked at the bear a little bit there and says, depending on the application and when it first came out, it was way worse, right? Like when it first came out, like getting applications to run across NAT was a nightmare, but it's well, big. I there's there's a really great story about this, and I heard John Curran tell it at an Aaron meeting. They broke FTP. The first time they ever tried to do FTP across a NAT boundary, they couldn't figure out why FTP broke. And it turns out that if you cracked open an FTP packet, it literally embedded the address of the, of the host it was trying to reach in the packet. It was a string literal. Yeah. So they had to repair FTP to work across NAT the very first time they tried to use it. So you're right. It's been a problem since day one. <laughs> right. Ah, the passive mode of FTP, like the good <laughs> old days. So you, you brought up, Tom, a good point um, in some of the history. Um, but one of the use cases that was always explained to me and that I saw uh, a couple of times was related to, not exactly, but, but related to um, what you mentioned when, uh, you know, a company purchases another company. Before, um, you know, before the internet at large was uh, very, you know, was basically a utility. Um, there were companies that existed that needed IP networking in addition to their SNA and all the other nonsense that, that we were building out back then. And so, but they didn't necessarily need internet access or maybe they didn't, you know, weren't located in a place that actually could even get it, but they still had to address their stuff. Now I saw on more occasions than I care to be comfortable with um, very large organizations that had numbered their networks before they had IP address space that were one on someone else's IP space. Like one that I saw repurposed a lot was the DODs. Uh, and they space. still exist. Like those, those legacy networks that are IP'd with public IP addresses, they're, they're still in lots of organizations. I won't say any more than that, but lots. Yep. They're, they're very prevalent and or or they had um, 1918 space because they had a network engineer that was savvy enough to build that out. But when they either merged or got bought or bought another company, they needed a mechanism for rather than renumbering every single thing, which is very laborious and boring and no one wants to do it. It's extremely manual back then. They wanted to just be able to butt these networks together and have connectivity between them. So the address translation piece of that, if you're not one-to-one, um, which was the original version of network address translation, which is one IP address for one IP address. And I assume we're going to go into the different blends of, of NAT later. Um, but that was a big use case for it um, to, to sort of expound on what you uh, had mentioned earlier, Tom. Yeah. And I mean, for so those of you who are keeping track at home, that's RFC 2663 that defines the network address translator. Oh, look at that. Tom did his homework or he just did his homework. One of the two. I just did my homework. 
the kids in class that are scrambling to find the answers right before the teacher asks for the test. That's me. Nice. Very, very nice. I mean, so we talked a bit about the origins. We talked about the fact that, you know, uh, we needed a mechanism to, to tame IPv4 address exhaustion. Uh, we needed a mechanism to kind of join companies together and, and whatever. Uh, but as we move forward, the whole idea was to replace it, right? Was to get rid of it. The, it was never meant to be a permanent protocol, but we've gotten so used to it at this point that I just, I don't know. I feel like it's probably not going anywhere, right? But IPv6, let's talk about IPv6 for a minute, right? Because that was the, that was the next, I mean, even in the late 90s, that was where we were supposed to be going. And so, you know, with IPv6, NAT wasn't in the spec at all. <laughs> Everyone was so confident that we were going to get to IPv6 that we weren't going to need it. So this temporary solution wasn't even built into the spec. Well, and I mean, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't built into the IPv6 spec that might have, maybe should have been. That could have been a whole other show. I agree with that. But yeah, so that, but, but generally speaking, Nat, like, I mean, we we're so confident that's going to happen yet. Nat is in use in just about every single network out there today. And so like, so what do you guys think? Is it still a necessary protocol? Do you think it sticks around for a while? What's your, call it your crystal ball. What do you think? It's going nowhere. I mean, Nat's here to stay probably for the duration of all of our careers, um, at least. For the duration of IP. If yeah. there's IPv4, there'll be Nat. Yeah. I mean, I think eventually what I'll, what I, if I got my crystal ball out um, or my magic eight ball, oh, perfect. Um, I would say that, we're going to be dual stacked once we get to the point where more people are running IPv6. Um, NAT and dual stack is the new normal. Um, you know, and if you look at the trends, you know, there's a very clear uptick of IPv6. Um, you know, from you know the original IPv6 day when it was less than one percent to now where it's like 15 or something. Um, I mean, that's, that's a fairly big change to happen over, you know, that's essentially boiling the ocean, but the, you know, to your point, there's places that will always have to have IPv4 connectivity for instruments and, you know, random other things that just is never going to get an IPv6 stack there. There will be some translation mechanism. Yeah, I agree. I think that, well, first of all, I, I have to bring up the old engineering maximum. There's nothing more permanent than a temporary fix. And now we're 20 something years into that temporary fix. But when you look at the number of IOT devices that are being brought online using the absolute cheapest devices that they can get out of China, um, they're all going to be running IPv4 over 2.4 gigahertz wireless. There's no way you can stop that. And it's the power of the almighty dollar. Yeah. And I think that, that that dovetails nicely into a point that Jordan loves to make uh, when I bring up my hand wavy stuff in that there has to be a business need, right? If there's not a business need or, or you're, you know, and that business need is very likely I'm losing money because I haven't done X. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the, this is the perfect case for this. Not Nat, but IPv6. The reason why we're at where we're at is because there's not been a business case for IPv6. IPv4 and NAT have been good enough. We haven't needed a reason to move on. We haven't needed, and I'm speaking, I'm speaking when I say this from the, the idea of the enterprise. There are places that have had to move on, and they have, right? When you talk about, uh, when you talk about mobile networks for your, you know, all the, all the carrier networks for your phones, like <laughs> they can't do IPv4. There's too many addresses. It's just not possible. They need IPv6, and, that, and they do it because there's a business case. But NAT, so coming back to, you know, like the fact that we struggled with NAT early on and that NAT was um, this, this protocol that broke a lot of things 
it doesn't break so much anymore. I mean, we've changed our applications. We've learned how to adapt the applications that don't work well across it. And I don't know about you guys, but I implement firewalls fairly often that are doing that. And I don't run into many broken applications. And so we've gotten to the point where it's mature enough now that any business case that existed for the pain um, from, from the fact that it broke stuff, there are other cases that I will come back to in a minute, but any, any, you know, case for the fact that it caused pain is almost non-existent at this point. Well, that's not entirely true, Jordan, because we have come up with a whole bunch of mechanisms to fix this, whether it be stun or nat traversal or whatever, but right. they're all working on one basic underlying assumption. I'm only traversing one layer of nat. And uh, as we found out a couple of years ago, when some ISPs who started running out of address space, had, when they had to start doing carrier grade NAT or NAT 444, um, it turns out that as you start layering NAT on top of things, it starts breaking because the protocols that we've developed to deal with it now never assumed they were going to be behind multiple layers of network address translation. And you don't have to look any further than Xbox Live. Xbox Live basically yep. believed that it's always NATed because it's in a residential network, right? Well, when you put it behind a carrier-grade NAT boundary, it breaks Xbox Live. You want to watch customers lose their freaking minds? Wait until an eight-year-old can't play Call of Duty and voice chat with his buddies. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the carrier-grade NAT is very common in small regional ISPs because they don't have the resources to deploy um, IPv6 because their equipment probably doesn't do it. And they're, you know, there's probably two people that runs the whole show. Um, and those are the ones where you're going to see a, a huge amount of, you know, a NAT 444 essentially. And there are applications that just don't work through that. And gaming is a big one. And, and gaming is, if you ever look at NetFlow data for, you know, a, a large ISP, Netflix, gaming data, Amazon, and Hulu. And that's pretty much, you know, if you, if you take one of those four away, that's 25% of the, <laughs> of the stuff your customers can't do, essentially. Um, but talking about the business case, there's a, uh, I had a kid event as well. Um, so talking about the business case, it's interesting because like Tom said, we've layered all these things and we've been, that basically just works at this point. I mean, because every consumer device that you buy off the shelf that, you know, your grandma's going to put into runner DSL, it's going to nap, right? It's going to assume that it gets one public IP address from the service provider. And that all just works. However, there's, lots of work that's gone into NAT that there was a business case to do, interestingly enough, where we've continued to paint over rust over and over and over, and it all just keeps rusting back through. Whereas if we would have taken the, I mean, one sixteenth of the effort that we've put into prolonging IPv4, we would have been done with IPv6 like a decade ago. But the problem is, and this is something that they all, and if you talk to anybody at Aaron or you talk to anybody who was originally involved in IPv6 development, they'll tell you straight away, we never intended for one to supplant the other immediately. It was supposed to be a smooth transition mechanism. We run them both at the same time because they're compatible with each other until we can migrate off of legacy onto the new stuff. And then we rip the bandaid off, basically. The problem yeah. was... When we get to a business case, when you go to your boss, when you go to management, you go, okay, all right, I want to double our routing costs for the next six months while I do a changeover. You know what they're going to tell you? No. You can keep the, what you've got at your budget and you can keep running that thing until it falls apart. Because how many times have we dealt with that where 
even though we know we have to get rid of something because it's old technology because it doesn't work anymore, um, you, you still run it. I mean, let's be honest. I just got a pop-up when I joined the Zoom meeting that the Zoom application that I'm using isn't compatible with Mac OS anymore because they're going to 64-bit only apps. Do you know when Zoom's going to update that application? The last day that they have to update it because otherwise it's too much of a business risk for them. And that's every yeah. network that we've ever run. And service providers are the worst. You know why? Because every day they can make that old equipment run just a little bit longer is one day they're not buying new equipment. That's absolutely true. And the expectation from service providers, you know, having been one forever is that I'm going to probably get a decade out of this. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, your, your statement is a hundred percent true and you can prove it by asking any network engineer randomly walking down your road. Have you ever, do you still have a Cisco 6,500 in production? Because he's going to say yes. Right. The box is 25 years old. Let's put a new soup in it, put a new soup in it. Right. Put some new line cards in it. I mean, that, that box is like IPV4. It has zombie like properties. It just keeps coming and keep going. Yeah. The undead network. Is that what I'm hearing? Essentially. I mean, it's still a good box. I, you know, it's fine. I, I, I don't I know what the internet's going to look like after the end of the world, but I guarantee you that Keith Richards and the cockroaches are going to be using, accessing a mainframe over a Catalyst 6500. <laughs> I would true. not bet against that. <laughs> so true. I mean, I mean, yeah, this, I mean, this just speaks again to, to that whole business case argument, right? Like the idea that things don't go away until they have to. Um, and, and, and that's why we're at where we're at V6. That's why NAT still exists. That's why all these things are still there. 6500 is another great example of that because the reality is that the world needed to some degree additional capacity, right? We needed, we needed devices that could do more, but not everybody needed that. And the people that needed it went and moved on and the people that haven't, oh, <laughs> cold dead hands, right? <laughs> like yeah. it's, not, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the nice thing about IPv6, and I think this is one of the things that, you know, a lot of people don't really understand, or maybe they don't think about is that, you know, you can have IPv4 and you'll, you're going to have it forever, essentially. It's not going to go away. You're going to need it for some legacy thing somewhere. So you're going to have to have a translation mechanism. But the nice thing is that that can just stay the way it is, right? We don't have to keep fixing that. If we put a little bit of effort into doing V6, it, they run, a like Tom says, they run as ships in the night, right? It doesn't make a difference. That's, and, and that's actually a really interesting point you can make about it too, is that I can leave my legacy IPv4 as long as I need to. And this, I think, is the expectation that at least I try to instill in that, you know, I, I can keep this IPv4 forever and keep the infrastructure it's running on. It doesn't need to change. If I want to implement V6, again, ships in the night. So I can that can be a completely different path, right? I mean, all it has to do is tie together at the access ports. Right. Um, so we've talked about, about you know, kind of the, the application impact of NAT, um, but I think there's a couple other things that NAT did that was, that was kind of uh, counter to at least what the original intent was for, for networking, especially service provider networking. And that was right, it added a middle box to the flow. So when, when, you, when you go way back to the way that networks were meant to be designed. They were meant to be these stateless path mechanisms for traffic to make it across. I didn't care which path it took or if the return path took the same path. I didn't care. But the moment that we add that middle box, all of a sudden there's a, a, a component of state that has to happen or has to be maintained and my traffic has to return through it or it breaks. And so I think that the real argument for me about getting rid of NAT isn't isn't necessarily about the applications because we've coped well with the exception of, of the, you know, the things that were brought up about uh, carry grade NAT and some of the other, you know, 
yeah, things that do break when you start getting into the more extreme cases. But uh, to me, it's more about the idea of we want to drive complexity out of our networks. And the way we do that is by maintaining as little state as possible. And we want to do as little as possible in the flow of the traffic. We want, to, we want that state and, that, and, and the knowledge and the, and the functions of the network to actually happen at the edge. And so when we add that middle box, we have a scaling issue, we have a state issue, we have a, a failover issue where if, I, if, I need, if this device fails, how do I ensure that my flows stay alive? Um, and we've built so much complexity into the network to solve that problem for the sake of not having to exhaust IPv4, we do it well, but it doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> I guess is so, what I'm saying. No, that's true. Go ahead, Tom. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say that's true. And that actually brings up um, a, a point that I think is important that we need to discuss at some point. It probably should be after what Tom says, but, you know, due to the nature of what you just said, you know, we've installed these middle boxes and there's a whole bunch of state that they have to keep track of. And we've started building security mechanisms into these middle boxes for the most part. Now, NAT and security get conflated together into this single thing, which is not really, I mean, it's accurate in a very small way, but it's also very misleading because I've seen on multiple occasions, NAT become a very large security risk because of the state that it needs to keep track of if the equipment that's keeping track of that state is undersized or is subjected to you know extreme duress running out the state table is like dos 101 right and it doesn't matter if you've got a redundant pair because when it fails over it's just going to exhaust that state table too so i mean that's something that i think is a, a really important point to make is that it's that they're they're kind of related but they're very very different and that was never really the the you know the driving force behind why it was created no you're absolutely right nick and what it is is it's convenience we created a choke point in the network where all the traffic has to pass anyway right so since we have that choke point whether it be a middle box or whatever it is Let's do some inspection work on it while it passes through. Security people love choke points, whether it's a man trap, whether it's the front desk, whether it's a firewall, because I see everything that goes through there. If you've ever worked with anybody who's tried to place an IDS or an IPS in a network, you know that literally three quarters of the deployment is trying to figure out where to put the silly thing so that it catches all the traffic that's going through there. And so you can't divorce the middle box from the security the way that we do things now, because if you get rid of the middle box, you have to push all the security pieces to the edge where the, the processing happens. Because like Jordan says, what we want is optimal path routing between hosts. And if those return paths are asymmetric, so we can't do things like unicast reverse path forwarding or what have you, well, guess what? The host has to handle all of that. So I guess now I need an eight core CPU instead of a six core CPU, because one of those cores is going to have to be dedicated to doing security all the time. Well, and yeah. now with the, the trends that we have in the industry with, with software as a service and, and uh, services moving to the cloud and doing more at the edge, it's, it's, it's not just created a technical problem, but it's created an educational problem because so many of our network engineers don't know how to think and they don't, they don't divide these functions or services into discrete um, services that that need that we need to run on the network at some layer and so they we we think 
both from a networking perspective and a security perspective that, well, we, we have to funnel everything through here because security with, with, with no real evaluating what service are we running, what application are we running, and how do we break those services up and put them in the right place in the stack so that, that things work better and they're less complex. Um, so, so we've actually also got a mindset problem that's been associated with NAT and middle boxes and everything we've been talking about. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's probably also important to call out, like we've been using the term NAT um, because that's what everybody uses for what's essentially port network port address translation. So originally NAT was a one-to-one -one translation, like Tom said, but more times than not now, and I can't even remember last time I saw a one-to-one -one NAT, but more times than not now, it's a, it's a mechanism for masquerading a lot of addresses behind a single one or a set of them. Uh, and so that's become sort of interchangeable now. And that's what most of these enterprises are deploying. And actually almost pretty much everybody that's deploying that is doing it that way. That's what's on your CP at your house and all this other stuff. And that's where the state table comes in. And that's actually, I'm coming, I'm, I'm actually coming around to a point here. Um, but so one of the things you mentioned cloud computing that a lot of people need to take into consideration if they're using that, which they very likely are as an enterprise, is making sure that whatever you're pushing out to the cloud, like you said, Yvonne, you have to decouple that and you have to start thinking about how is my middle box going to handle this? Does it have enough state to handle this? Does the wide area network have enough capacity to drink all this in because I'm doing that? And, you know, does this service support IPv6 for, you know, the point in the future someday, maybe when George Jetson's flying around that the enterprise deploys V6? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, be, but before we, before we continue this, I think we need to take a break here. And I just, we want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor today. So yeah, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor today, and that is Core BTS. Now you heard at the top of the show, maybe you've known for a while, but I've worked at Core BTS for the past few years. I am a technical architect in their enterprise routing and switching group. So if you haven't heard about Core before, they are a VAR. They're, they serve multiple regions here in the US. They're a Cisco Gold partner. They partner with a lot of other major labels as well. Uh, VMware, Microsoft, Citrix, Dell EMC, the list goes on. That's a really common story though. So I wanna tell you about one of the things that really impresses me about Core. And that is that, that there's just part of their culture that they genuinely desire to build partnerships or relationships with their customers. Uh, from the account managers all the way down to the engineers that they have on staff. Uh, their focus is building that trust-based, long-term relationship far more than getting a one-off sale. Uh, so there's a whole spectrum of, of resellers out there. They go from box pushers up to consultative shops. And Core definitely sits on the right side of that spectrum. And so if, if you think that you might be able to use a little bit of help, maybe you have a, a project you need a second set of eyes on, or maybe you have uh, some expertise that you need some help in, maybe it just doesn't make sense to staff, or maybe you're like the, like the rest of the enterprises out there that their staffs are just overworked. Uh, you could use some extra hands, you should let us know. And you can do that by emailing. Uh, the address you want to email is network.collective at corebts.com. Again, you can get a hold of us by emailing network.collective at corebts.com. 
All right. So, uh, so we, we started down this path uh, of talking both about security and the different types of NAT. And I want to, I want to come back to the different types of NAT because that's a really good point. And I think we've kind of just glossed over it a bit um, in that we speak about NAT and this is just reiterating what, what Nick said a few moments ago. And that is that we, we speak about NAT um, and typically we talk about it because so often in the enterprise, we're actually talking about PAT. And so talking a bit about the functional way that that works, right? Traffic goes out um, of your middle box, whatever the middle box is, most likely a firewall. The firewall then, uh, like Tom explained earlier, takes the source IP and replaces it with its own source IP. It can either be an interface or another IP that it will respond to. Um, and the way that it tracks that is actually using ports. It switches the ports that are, that are in use that is the source port. So when the, when the return traffic comes back to that port, it knows, oh, I initiated this traffic from port 6,000. And when I receive traffic back on port 6,000, I know that's this for this destination. And so when we talk about security and the fact that there's a state table, that's the table that we're talking about. And there's finite resources to maintain that table. And so uh, when we talk about, you know, like Nick said, denial of service, if you can get, you know, um, a firewall or a middle box to continually to have to register or not deregister old NAT entries that have expired, you eventually run out. And we sometimes see this not even as denial of service, but just regular network operations. If you undersize a firewall or undersize a device that's doing NAT, you can easily outscope the capacity of that table and all of a sudden just run out of those resources. And that's a bad day. And it's actually really hard to sort out speaking back to the complexity. Um, now, one-to-one -one NAT is, is more what we're talking about when we talk about joining companies that maybe have overlapping IP space. Maybe we have a slash 24 or whatever that has the same exact range and we don't want the two to uh, conflict with each other. We want to be able to route. Um, but we're also, while we may not have the state there, I mean, because I think, Tom, you said this before that, you know, or maybe it was Nick, I forget who said it, that that doesn't have the same state issues, but it really does because now we have to design our routing policy, our firewall policy, uh, all around this idea that the address changes mid-flight. <laughs> and so while the state doesn't happen in the box, it has to happen in our heads <laughs> as, we're, as we're deploying and building these things out. And that's really a bad place to keep network state. It really is. Yeah, definitely. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> it's amazing. A bunch of experienced networks on here and don't trust it to me. That's right. <laughs> never memorize anything you can write down and definitely never write anything down if you can make it programmatic, although you probably still want to document your stuff. Oh, I'm, not, so I'm not a proponent of the code. Self-documenting, right? <laughs> no, but, but seriously. So, you know, as we talk about this, and, and I think that I think this is one of those understated uh, effects of NAT, because we talk about the application side a lot, um, but we don't talk about the state side of it. We don't talk about the complexity that drives in it. We talk about flows and we talk about managing all this stuff. Um, and every situation is unique. And beyond that, it just seems to be a technology that's far too complex to implement. I don't know what your guys' experience has been, but it's far too complex to implement for what it really does. I mean, like we talk about it and it's a really simple concept. I was this address, now I'm this address, right? Like it's a really simple concept. It should be one line. But we've had what, like eight, nine different ways, just in Cisco world, not counting all the other vendors of how to configure NAT. And the times I come across it that it's just not configured right is, is pretty phenomenal, actually. Well, and as, as somebody who had the unfortunate 
claim to fame of being the person who could write any kind of NAT rule on a Cisco ASA. I can, I can really attest to what you're saying, right? They're like, okay. Did you get an award for that? I, I expect a medal ceremony for someone who can do all of that. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, it was painful, right? Like, but, but yeah, I was doing lots of VPNs. And so the NAT just sort of came along with it. And so when they came out with the new NAT, I figured it out. And when anybody needed help, it was like, and I had documents and everything, but no, and, and, and just the syntax of how to get the firewall to understand what you wanted it to do was mind numbing. Um, so yeah, I, absolutely what you're saying. I'm just affirming every bit of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm shocked you still have your sanity at that point. You know, I, I've had to build. I've had to build NAT on like every vendor you can think of under the sun, and by and large, the easiest way I've ever found to do it is like on a BSD machine running PF, right? It's like <laughs> one line, right? But right. try to do it on a Cisco, you gotta know, is it an ASA? It is, is it a PIX? Although those- Oh yeah, they're all other, different. They're, every one of them's different. And they're, they're still, and the way a router they're does still it out there. completely different than the way yeah. a firewall does it. <laughs> Don't tell me that, Jordan. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I know. I, I, know I decommissioned one or a pair of them like less than two years ago. I will neither <laughs> confirm nor deny whether or not I know of Pixis or anything. This is, this is business case. <laughs> Go running. Go, go in fact. Right? That's right. But you're but, right. I mean, and so, you know, even within, even within the vendor, when we talk about different lines, even within the same product, because if on mentioned new NAT, right, that was the 8.3 transition to, to where they took the, the ASAs and they changed the way you did NAT. Um, now it was a good change. It did make it simpler to some degree for the, for the stuff you do all the time, but man, like now, especially like I just in my role, this is just, you know, here's me complaining. This is me complaining. <laughs> like it's, I go into a place and the first thing I look at in a firewall is what version, cause there are still people running 8.2 and they're still sitting there and they're still running the old NAT because they didn't want to make that transition because they had so many NAT statements even though it was supposed to do it on its own, it didn't work perfectly every time. And the amount of failed, firewall upgrades because of that change um, it really speaks to the complexity because if this was really a simple thing to implement, it shouldn't be hard to translate between the old and the new. We should be able to do that with just a few lines of code, do your translation and be done. But even, you know, the people who write it weren't able to get that done right uh, correctly to the point where like I still run in, I still run into firewalls running 8.2. I don't even know what the current version is. It's much, much higher than that. I, I, I had, it's 9.8. I mean, it's a right. very, but um, yeah, I had to make an argument at one point in time with a colleague. We were putting in new VPN firewalls and I, I, I had to, he was like, well, let's just keep the old version. That way we don't have to rewrite all the NAT statements. I'm like, we're putting in a new device. It's never going to be easier than right now to rewrite these NAT statements, right? Like it's brand new. It's net new. There's never going to be a better time you know, until like, <laughs> the next hardware refresh cycle. So yeah, I was like, we're not going to stay on three-year-old code because we don't want to rewrite the NAT statements. So yeah. Some of the, yeah it's, it's unnecessarily complicated. And I think one of the reasons for that could be, and I'm speculating, is that NAT is a bolt-on in a lot of ways, right? A middle box typically has functions that they will talk about that aren't NAT. So I can do, you know, line rate, this kind of filtering. I can do deep packet inspection on, you know, at, at 8.67 gigabits per second on 64 byte packets. Oh, it also does NAT. 
right? So you're, 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 you're utilizing that state table to do some of those things, but in a lot of these devices, that's a separate mechanism. And especially in like older iOS devices or Junos devices or whatever, that's not their core competency, right? They can do it because someone wrote it into the code, but that's not what they were actually built to do. I also think that we, you know, just like all things, because we, we build them as engineers and I'm speaking that including myself in this is that we tend to try to think about every possible use case and then build something that can do all of those things. And then we end up with like 800 nerd knobs to turn to make it work, even for the simple use case. And so, and so for me, like I think about when I was studying for my CCIE and I was really getting familiar with that and <laughs> in ways that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, but, uh, but like some of the tricks, like, you know, you hear about the CCIE lab tricks, uh, some of them originated around NAT and the idea that, you know, like I could do source NAT, but on, the receive interface or on the destination interface or like, like just where you placed it, you could flip it around and do different things with it. And it was like someone thought about every possible nuance that could possibly happen. And then we built a solution with 400 knobs to turn. I said 8,800 before I forget exactly. It's just a lot, a lot of knobs to turn to, to make it work. I want to get back to, we kind of flirted with this uh, earlier and the idea of NAT as security. I mean, this is always one of those hot button topics. There's people who will definitively say yes or no one way. And so just out of curiosity, I want to hear from the, the three of you, one word, yes or no, is NAT security? No. Nope. I only get one word. Well, we'll, we'll expound. I just... <laughs> If with the question I asked that way, I will say no. Okay. Um, I would agree with you in a single word. So the idea is that, you know, NAT by itself is not security. Um, uh, but it does add a layer of abstraction, right? Like, I mean, like there is, there is a component, something that, that is given there that um, I think that was part of the piece that was missed by IPv6 is that we like the idea. We like the idea that hosts are not publicly addressable. We, we, we've gotten used to this concept. Um, and I so, think that's, that's the accurate statement. We've gotten used to this concept. Well, maybe, yeah. So, I mean, but we've built our security policies around this idea, right? We've talked about how the fact that we've, we've, we've taken our entire security model and dropped it into a middle box. Um, and yeah. it's, it's expanding more now. I mean, we're seeing a bit more mature security products coming out now that aren't just strictly about the firewall at the edge. But, but still, generally speaking, that's a big piece of it. And I think that your statement, I have a, I have a rebuttal for your one part of your statement that we've, we've built our uh, security model around it, not a rebuttal. I have an addendum. Okay. We built our security model around it erroneously. We've built it around it because out of necessity, because we didn't have enough IPv4 addresses, but at some point they, those, like I said earlier, those two things got conflated together and Abstraction, I mean, this is not really any different. Like NAT is equivalent functionally to, I'm going to speak in a different language over an unencrypted line than in the hope that nobody understands the language. Not necessarily. I, I, I take exception with that, with that metaphor. The reason why is because with a NAT, so it's specifically talking about PAT here again, back to the idea of Correct. Uh, overload NAT on the outside interface, single IP address shared by many hosts that sit behind it you from the outside cannot in any way initiate a, a conversation with an inside host. All communication has to be initiated from the inside. You, that's, you can't, that's a technically true statement. 
Well, thank you. I like being technically true. It's the best kind of true. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Now, give me a minute. That one. I no, know exactly I mean, where you got that from, too, and I appreciate that <laughs> reference. <laughs> but, but, I mean, so, so in that, it does, that level of abstraction does provide something. Uh, definitely not security on its own. Right, but it does provide something. And when we move away from it, so let's just say that IPv6 is the way it was envisioned is perfect. Everything is publicly routable. We have to completely rethink the way we do firewall design. Like we have to, we have to in, in, insert policy. <laughs> Tom's putting his hand up. <laughs> have to insert policy into middle boxes or into hosts that we didn't have to even address before. And so I would say that it has to be providing some level of security if we have to adjust our security policy by removing it. I mean, it's obfuscation is what it, it is. I mean, that's essentially the only thing it does is it obfuscates your inside hosts. There are ways of sussing out what they are. They're just not like straightforward and like not any Joe Schmo can do it, but it's, it's doable, right? But I would say that that's, that's really what they provide. They provide a level of obfuscation of what's inside, right? Here's a door you can't see through. So the whole concept of NAT and RFC 1918 actually blew my mind when I first started getting into networking because the first major network I worked on belonged to IBM and everything inside of IBM is on nine slash eight. And so when I started learning about networking, I'm like, well, if they're all 9.10 or 9.5 something, why can I not remote into my PC when I'm at home? And the answer is a firewall. So if you take the idea of NAT saying, well, this address that's on the inside, Mr. Jones is actually Mr. Smith on the outside. And when I remote, when I, Mr. Jones wants to talk to the world, they think they're talking to Mr. Smith. If you don't want people from the outside to talk directly to the people on the inside, NAT doesn't, you don't need that. You need a firewall. Firewall prevents that communication. I worked with a customer back at my old engineering job that had publicly addressable university IP address space and you still couldn't talk to their internal hosts because they had a firewall in place that had a rule set that said you can't talk to anything on the inside unless there's a state a stateful transaction that goes through it and comes back so nat doesn't provide you any additional security other than confusing jones and smith (laughs) well but if you have a host on the inside that's running a service on port 80 and it's RFC 1918, and you can't route to that from the internet. You can't get there from here. Like, you know, that, firewall that's or not, my point. you can't like, get there from here. My, my point it's is- It's a door you can't see in. That's yeah. all it is. Well, but it's, it's more than that though. It's a one-way door. It is, it is. So, okay, so let's, let's talk a bit. There's nuance to this, right? Because the, the attack vector we're talking about is not a predominant one, right? Nope. The, the, the predominant attack vector now is on the client. The idea is you're going to go click on something you're not supposed to click on. By the way, don't click on things you're not supposed to click on. But you're going to click on something you're not supposed to click on, and you're going to download some piece of malware that gets on your machine, and you're done anyway. Nat's not going to protect you from that in any way, shape, or form because you asked for it, literally. And that is extremely for it. prevalent. Right. right. That's, that's the attack mechanism that's really used, right? People like breaking into your network. But it is still just a one-way door. They, so when you talk about, you know, like the, the, the random script kitty out on the internet who's scanning internet IP address to see what's available, right? He does not get through the door unless the person on the inside initiates the request. 
Now, we still initiate the request all the time, which is why NAT isn't security by itself. But the reality is, is that from the outside, like Yvonne said, you can't get there from here unless something is initiated from from the client machine. And we've built our protocols around this because the initial protocols, like you said, with FTP were built around the idea that the two could talk to each other, that there would be no obfuscation, no nothing in the middle. And then if you didn't want to, you had to put a firewall in place. Well, today I can put whatever level of protection you apply to NAT. I can do NAT on a router with absolutely no firewall policy and people from the outside cannot attack the host on the inside unless they ask for it, which they always do. But it is a phenomenal mistake to believe that if if you're natting traffic, you have any kind of robust or even arguable security for your network. I just can't I mean, imagine that in today's day and age. Like, I mean, like with, with the, oh, the craziness of oh, yeah. security <laughs> solutions that are out there. I just, to, to, and I know, and maybe this is just me not wanting to be despondent about the state of our industry, but I just like, I just cannot imagine someone thinking that NAT actually is like by itself. This is the problem because that is extremely common. That is a very, I have had people argue with me till I thought their mouth was gonna, their jaw was gonna fall off that they don't need to do anything else. That's fine, and I, you know? I, I can only provide my questionable input, right? But it's, <laughs> it, it, it's very, very common to have that belief because it's very easy to believe the thing that's easy for you is exactly what you need. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the problems that keeps being brought up anytime back in the day when I used to be the I hate Nat guy. I mean, I really haven't relinquished the title. I just I haven't really written about it recently. That was one of the arguments for people wanting IPv6 Nat was, well, I want to obfuscate my internal IPv6 address because I don't want everybody to know it because the if you're using uh, EUI64 addressing, then it, it embeds the MAC address of the client you're talking to in the, um, in the, the packet. And, and you can see the address. And, and my response was always, and your MAC address isn't directly reachable from the internet. Who gives a crap? It's like knowing six digits of someone's social security number. That's awesome. If you don't know the other digits and you don't know what order they're in, congratulations. You have useless information. Yeah, that's actually, I can't tell you. I mean, I'm obviously fairly vocal about IPv6, so I get a lot of just back channel emails a lot of questions about can I, what devices support natting IPv6? And yeah. I've had, you know, back when I had a little more operational security uh, um, uh, responsibilities, um, you know, one of those, during one of those stints, I was responsible for doing some IPv6 rollout and the security folks that were primarily um, policy folks and not necessarily, you know, operational engineers were beside themselves that, you know, a, a Slack address could be reverse engineered to get a Mac address out of it. And, you know, well, there's so okay. I mean, this is we're getting dangerous to get into another topic here because this is a security. There is a privacy concern. There's not a security concern. There is a privacy concern. With Slack addressing, you can be tracked. So the idea is it doesn't matter sure. what your what your address is, your final however many you know bits are going to be the same everywhere you go. It doesn't matter which network you connect to. And so every place your phone goes, every place your computer goes to, that is where you went to. 
And so now there's, yeah. there's, there's a privacy concern, which is why I think people are leaning towards the answer is not NAT. The answer is DHCP V6, or they've built some additional, you know, uh, functionality into that to, to randomize the MAC address rather right. than actually using your MAC address. And so that's there. Wait, Tom, so, I have one quick point real uh -oh. quick. This is <laughs> Tom, good too. Tom, Tom keeps raising his hands. I don't know if it's know. a good thing or a bad yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't figured out that I don't do that. Um, so the point of the privacy concern is absolutely true. And the counterpoint I make to that is that you have so much software on your machine yeah. tracking everywhere you go and everything you click on that it is like eyeballs deep more of a privacy concern than someone knowing your layer two address. So let's, let's examine this idea that layer two addresses need to be obscured by NAT or some other function to protect my privacy, okay? I feel we'll, like I'm we'll, about we'll to get schooled from, from Tom here. Bring not, it. Not, not school. <laughs> this is something I want you to think about. So right now, my home PC or my, my laptop that I'm currently recording on has an IP address, right? Mm -hmm. But an IP address means nothing if two devices want to talk over layer two. How do they communicate? Well, you find the MAC address of the device you want to talk to. Right. How do I do that? I use ARP. Oh, wait. So there's a table out there somewhere on a device that equates my IP address to my MAC address, right? Hmm, that's really interesting. It's almost like if anybody wanted to do a little bit of detective work or find the right device, they would have an open book of what my privacy um, settings are. They would know what my MAC address was. Likewise, if you want to NAT an internal uh, RFC 1918 IP address to an external address, even if it's PAT where it's using port address translation, there's a state table somewhere. And not only is there a state table, but there's a state table over time, depending on how you have to log it. Because if you want to make an ISP scream right now, walk up to one of them that's doing carrier grade NAT and go lawful intercept. And if they don't run out of the room yanking their hair out, they haven't thought about that yet. Right. So those state tables allow me literally to take a carrier grade NAT, translate it to an IP address, translate that IP address to something internal to my network as a NAT, translate that NAT at IP address to an ARP at table entry. And now I know your MAC address. Which is, yes, great, which is great if you're an admin on a network and you have access to all those tables, or if you've owned every network that you've ever touched. The privacy concern isn't about one network that you're on. The privacy concern is the fact that you walk from place to place. And I'm, and you know, uh, maybe you do something that's not quite illegal, but you don't want out there. The, the reality is, is that when you do that thing and you're at that place and you get an IP address and your MAC address is associated with it, all you need now is someone in the carrier who sniffs a line, right? Because before that carrier didn't have access to your ARP table. They didn't have access. I mean, they could try, but they'd have to literally hack gear to get it or have credentials. Now, all you have to do is listen. And I know where you're coming from. And there's a big privacy concern because the, the, the availability of that information goes from inside of a network because you would have to have access to the LAN you're on to get the ARP table to being able to track that outside by third parties. And if, and if the past couple of years have been any example, there is a gigantic industry out there that does exactly this. Although with what Nick was talking about, the software that's on there, this is the dream of companies who want to track you, where you go, what you do. And if that matters to you, there's a valid argument here is all I'm saying. There's, there's, there, is, there is a privacy concern, not a security concern, a privacy concern with using your- Oh, now we're, so, now we're going really deep with yeah. the but not just NAND security, but security and privacy. Yeah, we, we, need, I, I we need to do a whole lot of issue. 
I, 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 I agree we need to do another show like this, but We're I cannot. I, ha, I need to, have to make a comment before my Nick's head, Nick's head is going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, you're absolutely right. There is a privacy concern here. This is technically possible to do this stuff. I'm technically right again. This is nice. Technically right. <laughs> yes. Realistically correct. Eh, you know, it's very, very higher likely, much higher likelihood, exponentially higher likelihood that someone's going to use software to track you over no. doing a huge amount of legwork to, you know, I mean, it's, it's dead simple to track you with software and I can yeah. do that everywhere, no matter what network you connect to. And it's regardless of the protocol. Right. But I can't but it's so unlikely that some, the other it's, the mac address reversal is going to even come into somebody's mind uh, you 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 are not you you're not thinking that i'm thinking less about carriers i'm thinking more about services so we'll just call out facebook loves to know everything about you right and so say you don't install facebook on your phone you never really try to access facebook on your phone but the reality is is that those little plugins are everywhere right now they track you because if you're signed in and those little plugins on a website say hey share this thing they know that you were there because they have associated your cookie with their their little plugin now you don't even have to be logged in because the request, the, the, the HTTP request that you did to pull that plugin has your MAC address in it. And so now they can start maintaining uh, knowledge, not of you specifically. I, uh, associating that with you specifically might be a bit harder, but they'll have this, this, this track everywhere you go on the internet, even if you aren't logged in, even if it's not the software, like there is, we're going to have to do a whole other show because I could talk about this for another 20 Jordan's minutes. Jordan's getting and I'm fired up. I, I am. There is, there is a concern here. I don't think it's the carrier. I don't think it's as complex as you characterize it because all you have to do is match the MAC address and then the, the IP prefix, the IPv6 prefix that it comes from. And then you know at least what, what network they were coming from. Are you ready to see my hand now? Because I have aces for that uh -oh. statement. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hold on to it. Let's, let's hold on to it because we are running long, unfortunately. I'm, what I'm, statement? Okay, go ahead. Um, what piece of, it's a question actually, what piece of equipment that you currently own does not do privacy addressing for its outbound requests on V6 now? Because I would um, say if you have one of those that you use every day, it's really, really, really out of date. So reverse engineering the MAC address out of a V6 address is super uncommon now because by default, almost every V6 stack does privacy addressing. So if you do an if config yeah. on, your, on your Mac, you'll see a bunch of addresses. Oh, yes. Every one you can't reverse to a MAC address. And, and, and so it uses for its connections. All of this was assuming the, the original version of Slack where we had IP addressing that was actually was your MAC address. Obviously, if you obfuscate it either through DHCP or through whatever, it mitigates it. All so right. It, it's on as that much note, obfuscation as now. <laughs> Yes. Nick is technically correct as well. I'll give him that. So, um, <laughs> so with that being said, we do have to wrap it up today. Um, Tom, where can, you don't have to raise your hand. Where can people find you? It's real easy. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at networking nerd. That's the snarkiest version of me unfiltered. So be ready. Uh, if you want to read the things that I write, you can head over to my website, networkingnerd.net. You can also see some of the posts that I make at my day job, my Bruce Wayne job, which is gestaltit.com. Just search for Tom. Make sure you favorite him as an author because I write good stuff over there as well. Um, you can also listen to some of the stuff I do there. Uh, we have a weekly news show called The Rundown. We also do some podcasting as well with the Gestalt IT um, on-premise podcasts. And yes, we are the only podcast that is both on-site and on-topic. <laughs>
<laughs> Very good. Nick, how about you, man? Where can people find you? Oh, uh, if they really want to look, um, I'm at Braulio at all the social medias and uh, I blog occasionally at forwardingplane.net. All right, Yvonne. It's been a while since people have heard from you. Where can people find you? Yeah, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network or at the um, poor neglected blog, eSharp.net. But really, I'm here at Network Collective quite a bit. So the NetworkCollective.com. All right. Yeah, I'm Jordan Martin at BC Jordo on Twitter, on all the rest of the social media sites, all those places. Uh, I do want to give a uh, quick reminder. This is going to be releasing just actually a couple days before we launch our new subscription site. So if you haven't heard that, you need to go back and listen to episode 27, or I have a blog I wrote on jordanmartin.net explaining what we're doing. And there's a lot of great content there, something to consider and a way to support us. If you like this episode and uh, want more of it, thenetworkcollective.com, at netcollectivepc on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.